Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Assassination is a tense, sweaty business. So Nick Averroes found it odd as he sat inside this bush for the 53rd minute, how cozy his spot had become. Barry and pine scented the air, and the little enclosure reminded him of childhood games. He could almost forget the Smith and Wesson hanging on his hip and the knife sheath in a horizontal draw on his belt. The air shook with the sound of a heavy V8. Nick pressed his back against the brick wall at the base of the fence. The six-bedroom mansion was all stone with slate roofs, fit for an Ivy League campus, though its perimeter was more appropriate for a military installation. It seemed unbreachable without raising the alarm, but every defense had its weakness. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Matthew Quirk, whose latest suspense thriller, Hour of the Assassin joins five other novels that will keep you awake only because it's impossible to put them down once you start. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So first of all, I want to know if you realize that when a reader starts one of your books, he or she might find him or herself unable to put the book down. Where did you learn this mind-blowing technique? Oh, well, I mean, I know there's a lot of books out there, and it's a thriller, so you really just want to grab people from page one. But I even used to do that in journalism, uh, to have, you know, a great opening line to a piece, uh, just to, you know, catch someone by surprise and lure them in. You know, you try to be pretty merciless in grabbing people's attention. Yep, that's what you did. You started out as a reporter. How did you come to write suspense thrillers? Well, I had always had the fiction writing bug and also loved doing journalism. And then I was working uh, for The Atlantic magazine in D.C. And I went there actually during college as an intern. Um, So suddenly... I went from, you know, studying history and literature to being thrown into DC and politics and foreign affairs, which I didn't really know much about. And I was really fortunate kind of through the magazine, which had a very small DC staff at the time and who the owner and through the owner who is this really interesting, very well connected figure in DC. Um, you know, he set up the offices in the Watergate. He owned the Watergate. Uh, I got to meet a lot of people and suddenly I had this baptism by fire in politics and foreign affairs. I would go to, you know, salons at that owner's house and be talking to um, former CIA directors and columnists. And my friends would be reporting and meeting with these kind of foreign um, government representatives who might have been trying to manipulate things in D.C. So it was just a really cool time. It was all in the run-up to the Iraq War. Uh, And it just, it fascinated me and brought me back to the thrillers I had sort of grown up on and loved. Uh, So, 
that led me to try my hand at them. And I just did it on the side for forever and took about six or seven years. I had a book that by the time I get to the end of drafting it, I would sort of figure out a little bit better what it should be about and start at the beginning. So I just worked on that forever, nights and weekends. And then I got laid off in 2008 um, and decided to sort of make the full plunge. And through a series of very fortunate um, moments, uh, ended up becoming a a published author. And it it all worked out kind of just in time, um, just before I was about to get married, which was... uh, going to be the end of me, you know, living off of savings and writing um, as a, an experiment. So everything came together really wonderfully in terms of getting the encouragement I needed when I needed it. And it just worked out great. So I've been really fortunate in that. So you didn't have a hard time getting published. Can you tell us a little bit about that and about breaking into the market? Sure. Uh, so I had this this manuscript I've been working on for forever, and it's a total cliche about journalists, that's true, that we all have a novel in the desk drawer. And I've been so like obsessed with the thing. It was like, you know, some people can't stop gambling and I just couldn't stop writing. So I just wanted to find out if it was any good. And I sent a chunk of it to a friend who worked at Harper's. And she sent it on to a friend who was an agent. We were all pretty young. I think I was like 28. And I thought it was going to be another young agent. And then I didn't think about it much. And then, you know, the global economy fell apart. And then I found out I was getting laid off. Still had a couple, you know, they gave me like a month um, before I actually left the office. But That weekend that I found out I was getting laid off, um, I got a note from the agent she had passed it on to, and he worked with uh, John Grisham's agent and said he had passed it on to him, and they said to keep going. So I had this incredible encouragement. It was the first professional feedback I'd had on any of my writing. And so it just showed up at the right time, and I decided to take the plunge and work on that novel and live off of savings. Uh, So I was just like eating spaghetti all the time. And then I finished that, and I sent it out to about a dozen agents, and basically all of them said no. It had a great beginning. Um, cause I did know how to do a good beginning, but it didn't, you know, it didn't come together right. Maybe because I had overworked the dough over you know, like the six or seven years I've been working on this thing. And, um, you know, uh, publishing is really funny coming from, uh, fiction, especially coming from journalism. Cause in journalism, you have six ideas. You go to your editor, you run them past him or her, and she'll say, oh, that second one's good. The rest are no good. And I was shocked in, in publishing and with agents that they have to see the final product. So a lot of these agents said, take another year or two, write another book. You kind of had the chops for this, uh, but I'll only know it when I see it. And I said, well, can I tell you the idea? You know, that's how I've always done it. And you can just say, nobody wants to read about uh, lighthouse keepers or whatever it is. And one agent worked with me in that way. 
which was great. So we kind of workshopped the idea and I went back and where that first book took six, seven, eight years, the next one took nine months. And this is where it turns into like total writer fantasy land because I was just hoping to publish it, to maybe make enough money to do this as um, something that might be my livelihood or I could supplement it. And he sent it around and it. the next week we had sold it to Little Brown and it was kind of far beyond anything I had expected. And then the next week um, we had a movie deal with Fox um, and it was just wild because I had been living um, very frugally in DC for a long time. And I had also given myself a certain amount of time to see if there was anything to this writing career, you know? And so this all came together about a month before my wedding. And I had my father-in-law who's great, but you know, occasionally he'd be like, you know, Matt, I, I had a band once and I would get the message from him, you know, to know that, uh, you need to be practical. So I'd give myself a certain amount of time. And then this all came together a month before the wedding. And, um, I've been doing it ever since and just count myself incredibly lucky. Sometimes I think I'm living in some sort of like delusional fantasy because I've been so, uh, you know, fortunate and that dream I had for so long, um, came together. Really wonderful. I can't wait to the move to see the movie about your life and how this all came about. That first book, is that 500? That's the 500. Yes. And is that the one that's being made into a movie or was it already made into a movie? That was optioned and then kicked around, and then the rights are back to me now. Uh, but we had a we had a very good run with it. Well, I saw the picture on the back of the book. I think you could play uh, Mike Ford. Oh well, thank Wasn't you. That yeah, Mike that okay. that picture is getting a little long in the tooth. But I'm like a okay. kid, <laughs> you know. I don't want to. I don't want to sit for school picture day and the taking the author photo is kind of hilarious. Um, so I'm just going to hang on to that one until it becomes outrageous. You know, when people can't recognize you when they meet you in person, <laughs> I'll get a new one. So let's discuss some of your protagonists, Mike, John, Peter, Nick, do you have a favorite or do you love them all equally? Like you're, they're your children. I would say I love them all equally. Uh, you know, Mike Ford, the protagonist from the first two books, is is very similar to me, and it's first person. So that book is very voicey, and it's really similar to me. So people would say, "Oh my God, I felt like I was just talking to you." So that's, I mean, obviously very close. Uh, close to my heart and came from taking some of my experiences and sort of feeling like a fish out of water going from, you know, the Jersey suburbs in going from the Jersey suburbs to, you know, Harvard and the Atlantic and this crazy Washington world and this genteel world. I felt like a fish out of water, but it was nothing, nothing crazy. And a lot of people, you know, when they first move to the city, they feel that way. So, you know, to sex it up for a novel and to dramatize it more, I had Mike, 
you know, not come from just like the suburbs and, uh, you know, middle-class parents, my parents were teachers and educators. Uh, he came from this world of crime. So it was kind of me, but in a thriller way. So Mike Ford was really close to my heart and, um, had a lot of my voice in there and it was interesting and a really fun exercise to start writing characters who were much different than I am. And Mm -hmm. when you first do something like that, you have no idea if you'll fall flat on your face, but the, my third and fourth books were much more kind of action books and uh, the intelligence and military world. And it came from moving to San Diego and just getting to know people who did kind of special operations work. And then I tried something on that voice and I'm a, I'm a very happy go lucky kind of um, funny guy. I'm not like a super intense ex military guy or anything like that. So the next protagonist was really uh, a bit intimidating for me, but a really fascinating experience because I wrote, in that vein. And then I showed it to my friends who kind of do that kind of work and cringed a little bit, wondering if I had, you know, screwed it up or turned him into like a GI Joe action figure. And they said, no, this is great. I was listening to the audio book and getting pumped up on the way to work and stuff like that. So that was really fun and um, a really important writing lesson because suddenly I felt like I had this big canvas. I started writing in third person. I could write more action and uh, could just go into a lot more worlds. They all have a lot in common, The uh, your leading men. They tend to be good looking, uh, maybe as old as 40 something, with razor sharp instincts, all of them. What do you think are a few of their more interesting differences? I'm talking between oh. Mike, John, Peter, and Nick. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I hear you on the similarity. And it's, you know, because because these are thrillers and you, you know, you project a little bit and everybody wants to read about larger than life, competent, cool characters. Um, you know, Mike Ford was, he was funny. He was much more of an everyman. And did some of the hairier things in that book kind of because he was an extremist. Um, And then um, John Hayes is just straight down the line action hero. And I combine them a little bit with the protagonist from the night agent, which was my second to last book where you have a character who is, has one foot in sort of the national security intelligence world. And it's credible that he would, you know, be able to win a fight and that kind of thing. Um, But he's not, you know, one of these unkillable action heroes and then i went back to that a little bit for hour of the assassin where the main guy nick Averroes, is um totally competent and you know handles everything from the jump so they vary in their every manness and they vary in what 
you know, the monkey on their back, the big trouble they've been dealing with their whole life is. Um, but there is a similarity between the books in that I like to tell a story where you have a character who has where the character and the action come together. So, you know, Mike Ford needs to face up to um, his past and his family's past as a criminal and deal with that at the very height of the plot of the book. And in the climax of the book, you know, he sort of reveals a lot about himself and the main character and the night agent similarly, you know, has to face these family secrets he's been running from his whole life in order to get to the bottom of a conspiracy. Uh, so they all have their different um, hauntings, you know, but uh, Mike Ford is a lot more fun than John Hayes because John Hayes is, you know, being hunted by the government. Um, so I kind of vary along those poles too, but I do love to get, even if it's a different kind of humor, I would do love to get a little bit of humor in there too. Yeah, you did. Uh, I'm not saying which book this comes from, but how did you come up with the far-fetched idea that a foreign country like Russia might interfere in American elections? So I started that in 2015, and that's The Night Agent. And the germ of that book was in a hotel that I would ride my bike past every day on the way to work, uh, a man died. And according to the official story, he was a Russian uh, media uh, kind of bureaucrat. He ran one of the Russian foreign stations, I think. And according to the official story, he um, got really drunk and fell down. And then he fell down again and again and again. And he fell down something like a dozen times and broke his neck. And so it's one of these things where he was murdered. And at a certain point, it goes from being a police investigation to an FBI investigation. And then political sensitivities come in. So, and this all really happened. I know this sounds like a thriller plot. So it was just wild to me that there was a Russian assassination right in my old neighborhood. And I started looking into Russia and how aggressive they were being and how they, you know, have more spies in the West now than they do, than they did at the height of the Cold War. And I just, I thought it was fascinating. And I spun out, you know, based on some really early stuff, like uh, like the Yellow Ledger, I think I'm remembering that correctly, mm -hmm. that were really like page A12 kind of stories. I spun out this modern Manchurian candidate kind of plot. And it seemed totally outlandish at the time. And then I started writing it. And, you know, by the time I finished a draft, it was front page speculation whether the president uh, was wittingly or unwittingly, you know, working for Russia or had been compromised by them. And on the one hand, you're like, great, this is so topical. But on the other hand, you're like, oh, darn, because it takes a year from when you button up the book until it comes out. So my totally outlandish thriller plot had become kind of 
the main speculation and the main topic of conversation in DC. So I was concerned for a while. And then I sat back and thought of some ways to add some twists. And it was a nerve wracking moment, but ultimately it was great because there was a twist there that let us get ahead of the headlines a little bit with that. And I think surprises readers who have been following the news and, you know, hopefully also mixes up um, some of the partisan lines that people might have been expecting the story to run along. We're just going to go with the idea that Russia got their ideas from you, okay? Oh, I hope so. not. That's too much responsibility. <laughs> Sometimes your descriptions of Washington, D.C. are almost loving. So I know you live in San Diego, but just tell me honestly, are you having a long-time affair with the District of Columbia? I love D.C. I love Obviously. DC. Yeah. It's green. It's, you know, it's beautiful. It's, you can walk and bike everywhere. Um, everyone I knew and hung out with was uh, driven, you know, by a cause more than, this is to generalize, but, you know, my friends in New York, it was about, you know, going to New York, it was often about making money. So I, I love DC and I, um, I, I wrestle with this. Because a DC conspiracy thriller, you're always focused on the corruption and evil stuff. And it's all there, and it's horrible. And I am a news junkie and am, you know, constantly in some sort of, of fury, you know, based on what I read. But, uh, and, and when you're writing a conspiracy thriller, that's the terrain. You know, nobody wants to read a book about somebody who works at the NIH and just makes sure that um, everybody has enough swabs to do their tests, you know, until now. Uh, so I try to balance the conspiracy thriller elements with some, you know, glimmers of hope because there's a danger in these books that you'll feed into the idea that it's so hopelessly corrupt that nothing can be done. And, you know, that feeds into cynicism and apathy. Um, so I'm not saying these books are the most important thing in the world, but I do like to show the people who are sort of doing the work day in and day out and to show real issues and to have um, protagonists who are, you know, able to fight back even if you know they can't win the war in one swoop, um, so I, you know, I always work for that balance. But in this book, it just seemed like a time in DC where, um, in terms of what could be covered up, and whether, you know, the, you know, whether the people in power would be able to maintain power and whether things would just keep going as they have been some of the more dispiriting ways that people can keep their secrets and get away with things in this book it, it seemed a little bit of a cop-out to have a purely happy ending um so i try to reflect reality in that way you know so you try to balance against between fighting cynicism and also being true to the corruption and um, greed in the district, in the mm -hmm. government. Let's uh, change tack tracks here. 
Um, let's talk about what your characters eat while they're hiding or running for their lives. I mean, this is interesting. I had a hard time believing that someone would eat three Cliff Bars for dinner. Let's talk about food. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's what you eat when you're on the run because you're, you know, you're starving and um, eat them quickly, and uh, that's kind of the deal. I, I did, um, I did a course where I was. It was like a kidnap and evasion course, and some of the people who inspired the hour of the assassin book and the main character there um it was this neat red team job they recommended i do this course where i basically get kind of kidnapped and hooded and stun gunned and chased across la and i i hid you had to kind of hide food and other stuff that people do like if you were actually operating in a denied area or something and you know in all my caches these things you hide around the city i would put cliff bars and that sort of thing so um you know that came from research but there's another aspect of these books um where you know it's really important to get the action scene right the big showpiece action scene but it's also really important to you know show the characters bonding and that that kind of always seems to happen over food because it's just such an elemental comfort thing. Um, and it's also a big part of the local color in these books and my love of DC, you know, so if I can fit in reference to an old diner that was around forever, which is now sadly gone, I believe, um, I can sneak in a reference to that place and that gives you, you know, the real feeling of the place. And I mean, the diner I sneaked into Hour of the Assassin was actually where George Pelicanos, the great DC crime writer, where his father's Greek diner was um, kind of in the iteration before. So food is just a great way to get the local color and have people take care of each other. And those, those moments of bonding are just as important as the action. You've said that some of your books are based on real life characters. Can you explain why? Why do you know so many guys who might be suddenly running away from powerful adversaries? Well, I seek them out in some ways. Uh, <laughs> okay. But also, you know, in D.C., you just meet these people and you keep your eyes open. And, you know, if you meet somebody interesting, you, you know, get to know them. And... Now that I've been doing this as my job for, I don't know, like 10 years, it it gets easier because people say, oh, you should talk to this person. Um, mm -hmm. So, But a lot of it was just serendipity. So for The Night Agent, which was the last book, I had a friend who, when I first met him, I mean, in our mid-early 20s, he would disappear every night and people would whisper, uh, we knew he worked for the FBI. People would whisper, where is he going? What's he doing? Is he like doing some cool counterintelligence thing? And I started looking into it and, you know, he worked a sort of night watch desk and he answered directly to the FBI director and he would be the first person the FBI director would talk to in the morning. And the idea of a young person waiting all night in some watch room sitting by some phone and 
when things really go sideways, that person may have to pick up that phone and wake up the FBI director or even the president. Uh, was such a, a fascinating, dramatic, and kind of like a real, a real hard won element of DC. You like you hear about that job, and you're like, yeah, there probably are people like that. That's a fascinating little world, and that suggests the hook for a novel immediately. You know that they hear something they shouldn't, and then. In this case, he gets a call, not from a, another bureaucrat, but from a young woman whose family has just been killed. And then you're off to the races. Um, so... Let's talk about the women. Let's stop and talk about the women. Okay. There are a lot of adorable women. Are they also based on people you know? Uh, yeah. You know, you take bits and pieces of women you know. Um, and I, you know, it's in 2020. Um, and the way I grew up and all the women I knew, uh, you know, they're peers, they're not waiting for rescue. You know, if I have a woman get rescued, I'll make sure later in the book I have, you know, my guy get rescued too. Um, and yeah, they're based on, you know, my wife, um, and other people I knew around DC or, uh, some, you know, badass people I know who work in national security. And that's one of the things that that comes from having some access to people who really do this work. I think in a lot of people's mind, when you think about the NSA or the CIA, or even, um, you know, sort of elite military folks, it's always like some stodgy guy. But it's not, you know, you have you have young women, uh, you have them in senior leadership roles, and you, you know, they're smart, they're funny, and uh, you also, you know, have women of color. So I just try to reflect that in the books as much as I can. You've shared a little bit about some of the fun things you've done to research your books. Tell us one more. Well, one fun one was the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which is the site of a heist in a book called The Directive, which is the second Mike Ford book. And it's it's very relevant now because the New York Fed has, I can't remember, like a trillion dollars worth of gold, some outrageous amount of gold in the basement. Basically, during World War II, all other countries gave it their gold for safekeeping, and it basically stayed there. So it facilitates gold transfers, and it's a perfect heist. And you can go on a tour and look at it, and the vault door is actually a hallway. It's this giant steel disc with a hole through it that's a hallway, and they turn it at night. So it's just perfect heist stuff. And... Now it's especially relevant because the billion whatever dollars of gold in the basement is not the most lucrative heist at the New York Fed because that is where the government does its bond purchases. I know this gets a little kind of technical, but they have a trading desk there that basically keeps the economy afloat. And when you hear about the Fed buying in the current situation, 
like $2 trillion worth of bonds or however much it is. There's one trading desk that's doing all those bond purchases. So it's a heist against that desk and to um, make money uh, based on getting inside that desk. So it was really fun to research, but I went to the Fed and it's one of the most secure buildings in the world. Um, well, it has kind of regular government security. It's not like Fort Knox until you get to the vault and then it has this world-class security. And I had done all this research because the finale of the book is this Fed heist. So I kind of knew what their security was. And I had been working with these red team guys to figure out what a heist would look there. So I was, you know, pretending to be a thief there to case the Fed. And it was wild because they sort of sent me through, they're called man traps, these special security gates that let one person in at a time so they can, you know, make sure there's nobody goes in behind someone else. And then, you know, a person looked away and somebody else said, well, just go on the elevator. I was supposed to be on a tour. And I was on the elevator by myself or with one other person. And then they got off and I said, okay, well, I'm just going rogue here. And I pressed the button for the floor that I knew had this, you know, trillion dollar trading desk. And suddenly I was, you know, kind of sneaking around in the heart of the Fed. Um, so that was one of the most fun uh exciting little you know playing the thief moments and then i got up there and looked around and i said oh man this isn't a book you could get arrested or something um but yeah it's good in moments like that or you know doing the research in la to uh to really scare the dickens out of yourself every once in a while just to get back <laughs> to you know what's going on with your main character and that and that sense of uh you know that exhilaration and also the the dread that coming that comes from you know being hunted and all the stuff that's the stock and trade of us thriller writers so what are you working on next i'm working on a novel another dc thriller and the inspiration for it is this idea that the soviet union during the cold war had certain plots and sort of sabotage plans and elements of those were buried and put into deep freeze kind of around the district or, you know, further out around the country. And that all comes from this uh, defector who actually said there was such a thing. And so the notion is, you know, what if uh, some kind of rogue agent today starts to rev up that old hidden Soviet doomsday plan. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I'm, you know, early on in it, in the rough draft of it. And um, I'm plugging away. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you for having me. And uh, thanks for everything you're doing at the New Books Network. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Matthew Quirk, author of Hour of the Assassin, along with five previous thick, juicy thrillers. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Book Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. 
As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash NBN forward slash join.